When you're working with another individual in the workplace, client or prospect, they have to buy you as an individual before they will agree to buy anything from you. From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FLCMAA Podcast Network. Do you want the quiet presentation or the juicy one? Let's go there. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, my client did not commit a murder. The year is 1972. The courtroom is in Philadelphia, and my client, Edwin Booth, is accused of killing his wife. We're going to start with a story about an attorney who will use nonverbal communication, body language, in an attempt to gain an acquittal for his client. What I'm going to ask you to do is serve on the jury. How would you have voted had you been in this courtroom? The story is from a book called The Devil's Advocate by Alan Dershowitz of Harvard Law School. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, did Edwin Booth kill his wife right now? If I were you, I'd be putting this man away. But we have a few things to consider. In my closing argument, I want to ask you just one question. Has a murder been committed? As you know, you're sitting in a very unique situation. You are judging a man accused of killing his wife in a situation where the prosecution team has actually failed to prove that a murder has been committed. As you know, Mrs. Booth's body has never been found. So essentially, what they're asking you to do is assume that a murder has been committed. Why don't we pretend that a murder has been committed? We could put this guy away, get on with our day, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is a court of law in the United States of America, and we require proof that they have not provided. In their rush to bring this man to trial, they're going to ask you to believe that a murder has been committed. Now, right now, I know what you're thinking. The evidence is stacked against him. As you know, his fingerprints have been found in blood on the murder weapon. Okay, not a good thing. But as you heard, that fateful night when he came home, he picked up an object from the floor of his unlit living room, a knife from his own kitchen. Did Edwin Booth kill his wife? First thing you want to do is have a body when there's been a murder, and we haven't got one. They dragged the Schuylkill River. They came up empty. They took hundreds of volunteers, went to the woods and fields near their home. They found nothing. They want you to skip right past those details and put this guy away. Hired to defend this man, we too looked for Mrs. Booth. But the defense team began with a very different assumption. Our belief was that she was alive and well and living in another location. And I am here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that on my count of 10, our so-called murder victim will be entering this courtroom through the double doors at the back of the center aisle. And when she does, you cannot convict my client. What would you have done? Can you imagine now? Let's go back to 1972. There's no Greta Van Susteren. Nancy Grace hasn't even been born yet. This is big theater. In a Philadelphia courtroom with hundreds of spectators, the defense attorney has just announced that he's going to produce the murder victim on a 10 count. Now, I want to give you an idea of what the room looks like. You're the spectators. The actual jury would have been positioned over here to my left in two rows of six. Front row on the floor, second row elevated about 18 inches. 
They're looking out at the judges if they say, is this guy serious? He's going to produce the murder victim? The defense attorney moves right into his 10 count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He calls out to the back of the courtroom. Well, by the time he does, there's not a person in that room who's failed to turn around in their seats. In the center aisle, people are leaning over to get a clear look at Mrs. Booth as she comes through the double doors at the back of the courtroom. It's a big room. And the people up here in the front don't have a clear line of sight. So spontaneously, they begin to stand. When they do, the jury members no longer have a clear line of sight. So they too stand in order to see. There's a pause and the doors at the back of the courtroom are slowly pulled open. Freeze, don't you move. He goes right at the jury. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, take a look at yourselves and consider for one moment the message you are sending to the spectators in this courtroom. Each and every one of you standing up and looking for the murder victim to come through those doors. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, in a few moments, the judge is going to inform you of a legal concept we call reasonable doubt. He will tell you if you have a doubt that a murder was even committed. And look at yourselves. You have that doubt. You cannot convict my client. Are you kidding me? Here they are. They're busted. They will deliberate for less than three hours on a charge of first degree murder and come back with their verdict. Edwin Booth is found guilty of murder in the first degree. Bummer. When they came back with a guilty verdict, the defense attorney was stunned. He had proven reasonable doubt. I mean, he had a heck of a close. What went wrong? Thanks for their services, the jury members start to file out of the courtroom, and the defense attorney cannot contain himself. He goes up to the first one leaving and says, how did you find my client guilty? My client, I proved reasonable doubt. And the juror number five stepped back and put his hands in the air. He said, you had us dead to rights, man. That was a hell of a close. But it was just one of us, juror number 11, one of us who noticed something strange. You see, in all the excitement of seeing Mrs. Booth come through the double doors at the back of the courtroom, it was just juror number 11 who noticed that when those doors were pulled open, there was but one person in that room who had failed to turn around and look. And that idiot was your client. <laughs> had Edwin Booth sent a message with his body language? Absolutely. He was the only one in the room who knew on no uncertain terms that when those doors were pulled open, no one would be entering. It cost him 17 years of his life and he died in prison. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here to share with you a set of skills so powerful you will use them before you leave this room. I'm not here to talk about body language. That's just a part of it. I'm here to talk about vocalics, which is the way we use our voice, the management of time and space, appearance, posture, gesture, facial expression, breathing, touch, voice, the works. What we're going to do is we're going to look at how we communicate. Before we do, I'd like to engage in a little test. Are you okay with that? Could we do that? Let's have a little fun. If you can push away from the table a little bit, I'd like nothing in your hands, no phones. Oh, that'll be a shock for some of you, okay? 
Realize what's going on in our world, right? If you're dealing with a client who is above the age of 55 and you look at your phone in their presence, you have violated that client. If you do not look at your phone with a client under the age of 45, you're not connected. It's a whole different set of interpretations and they change generationally. What I'm going to ask you to do is cross your legs. Just fold your legs. We're going to sit down. I'm going to ask you to cross your legs. Do what comes naturally. One of us, you may not realize, but over 95% of the time, you're going to cross one leg as opposed to the other. What I need to know is which one's crossed. So if you have the right leg over the left, raise your hand. Let's see a show of hands. Check it out. Now, if you have the left leg over the right, I need a show of hands. Okay? Okay? Ideally, we're going to find about 70% of people fold the left leg over the right, and you guys are almost at 50-50, so you're messing with me. <laughs> I have a second part to my experiment. Fold your arms. Do what comes naturally. Now, listen clearly. I'm going to give you some directions here. I want you to stay in this position for about two minutes. I want you to know that you are engaging in a behavior that you adopted within 72 hours of your birth. You may have been swaddled this way and that did the neurological grooving in your brain. You may have had a dominance. But what we're going to find is that over seven, I know you don't believe me. Cynicism is a tough thing. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. But what you're going to find is that one hand dominates over the other. And that will indicate your brain movement. So if you have the, well, we're not going to get too far into that. I really need to ask a question of you. Right hand showing. Is your right hand showing? Let's get an indicator. Okay. You people are more in tune with body language than you are language, because I asked you to stay this way for two minutes, and you have violated my request. <laughs> That's okay. I expect that. You know, 70% of us approximately are visual learners, so you're going to see something. I have fun with audiences. I'll say, raise your left hand, and they will, and I'll say, raise your right hand. And they struggle. They actually see the faces on them. They're, they're having trouble with it. What I want you to know is that we operate on multiple channels at all times. Let's go back to having your arms folded. If you have stayed in that position, I do want you there about two minutes. Let me tell you what's going on. The brain is hemispheric, so you have two half brains, right? The left hemisphere of the brain includes all conscious thought. Its functions are language, logic, mathematics and analysis. I expect about 65% of the males to be exposing the fingers of their right hand. And the reason for that is men tend to be logical thinkers. That's what we're rewarded for in our culture. So I, a little bit of a bias in that direction. So if the fingers of your right hand are exposed, when push comes to shove and you've got a problem in the workplace or at home, you move to logic for solutions. You are a conscious thinker. You see, consciousness is a function of language. You did not operate consciously until you developed language skills. They correlate. Now, if the fingers of your left hand are exposed, and some of you ladies are fighting not to switch, don't switch. I know you're empathic, but stay where you are. If the fingers of your left hand are exposed, you are right brain dominant. I expect this from a majority of the females. They are emotional rather than logical. And emotion's not a bad thing. They're intuitive, they're creative, they're sensitive to color and rhythm and space. If I'm looking for creative people, in all fairness, if I'm hiring, I want to hire these people. Why? They're very good at relating with others. I do a lot of work in the financial services industry, and I'm a, I tell you what, I can teach anybody mathematics. I have a heck of a time teaching people skills. 
A rare 12% of people, and look around, these are people you want to know, a rare 12% of people are showing the fingers of both hands. These are people who think logically and emotionally at the same time, okay? I'll give you the math. Hear me clearly. When confronted with a problem, in 35 milliseconds, 35 one-thousandths of a second, they will secrete a chemical to the over, are you ready? 21 trillion cells in the body that says I'm going logical or emotional. I mean, you meet a bear in the north woods of Maine on a path, you're not going to stand there and say, I'm out of here, let me think, should I free? No, 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 you're not going to struggle, you're going to react. Okay, and that reaction, you know, is fight or flight. But if you're observing body language, that is not what you see. You see, when you're confronted with a problem, you don't go fight or flight. You go freeze, fight or flight. Everybody freezes and assesses. It might be a micro assessment, but there's always a freeze in there. So quick, we don't acknowledge it. So let me recap, and I'm not done yet. Fingers of the right hand, you're logical in your thinking. And again, nothing I say is 100% accurate. You can ask my ex-wife. But we're looking at 75% on this one. If the fingers of the left hand are exposed, the odds are you're creative, all right? You're a right brain person, because the right brain controls the left half of the body. If both sets of fingers are out there, you make a decision in 35 one-thousandths of a second, I'm going to go logical or analytical, or I'm going to go emotional, and I'll deal with it that way. And you're going to stick with that decision. And a very rare 7 to 8% of you, and look around the room, you want to see these people. A rare eight to 7, 7 to 8% of you are concealing the fingers of both hands. These are dishonest people who are not to be trusted. <laughs> and here he is patting you on the shoulder. I, I, what the hell's wrong with this guy? I'm kidding. These are the most creative thinkers in the world. What we're going to find is these people think emotionally and logically at the same time. Let me tell you how this works. The Greek word for logic is logos. The Greek word for emotion is pathos. They're pathological thinkers. All right? They think logically and, and emotionally at the same time. So if they are dealing with two or three people and they've got an issue, they're dealing with an emotional and a logical, they're having the time of their lives. This is fun for them. They love the challenge. I try to fit people in one box or the other. They're more than happy to accommodate. All right? Now, part two of our experiment. If you stayed in this position, you're secreting endorphins by now. Congratulations. Here's part two. Go from this position to this one. Flip. Put the other arm on top. Oh, yeah, now we've got some discomfort. I've got one woman back here who's like, where was I? I was here. I, was, I have no idea what the hell. How long. And, and there's still a couple of people looking. The search is not right. All right, release. Do not stay in that position. What I want you to know is that you perform exactly the same behavior day after day after day. This is natural. This is abnormal for most people. So when you're doing this, everything's great. When I ask you, this is not a big deal. I just asked you to put the other arm on top. It's something you joke, you kid around, you have emotional experiences from this. That's fascinating. Now, I want you to know that 2 to 3% of you are absolutely naturally comfortable in both positions. You're thinking you're ambidextrous. We're thinking you're schizophrenic. <laughs> All right? How's it working? Helping out? Let's go into your workplace. Do you meet people every day in the workplace? Let's take a look at some of those skills. I want to analyze handshakes. I want to do it in a big way. 
We all have beliefs about handshakes. What you're going to do is gather a set of skills so powerful, you're going to start to use them before you leave this room. So I'm going to ask you to do is free up both hands, no pens, no pencils. I want you to stand up. You're meeting two or three of your clients. Shake hands with two or three people near you. Pay attention. I will have questions. No hugging back there. Oh. Okay, take your seats. Let's see how you did. I asked you to pay attention. I told you I have questions. Here's question number one. You just shook hands with several clients. Raise your hand right now if you can accurately tell me. While meeting this individual, what were they doing with their left hand? Left arm and left hand. Anybody? Okay, one person, all right? Two people. Let me tell you what you missed. By shaking hands and not looking at the non-shaking hand, you just missed the single most accurate indicator of attitude and intent when you're meeting another individual. Wow. Check it out. There are four response patterns you're likely to see. And you know what? I should take a moment here and share with you that I do some weird stuff on stage. In the late 1950s and early 1960s in the, remember the Soviet Union? In Russia, they were challenging academic people to do some things differently. And what they found was a concept called super learning, which is in a book by that name by Sheila Ostrander. What they found was that if they violated your cognitive structure, you would retain more information. So if I told you there were seven things you need to know, and I gave you both of them, you'd remember more. You got the picture? Said seven, showed four, gave two. I could show four and give you all 11. But what's going to happen is I'm going to give you several points, jump, go to a different topic, and then come back. If you're taking notes, I want you to know how that appears. You're taking notes in front of a prospect, a client, or colleagues at a meeting. You are perceived, on average, as 14 IQ points more intelligent than if you're not taking notes. Does note-taking correlate with intelligence? Yes and no. What we find is that somewhere between 12 and 18% of people are regular note-takers. But only 3 to 4% of those rewrite their notes within 72 hours. So within three days, if you go back, clarify, fill in the gaps, even call somebody and ask for a clarification, then you probably do have a higher level of intelligence. This is a very small percent. But the big news is, do you deal with reality? Do you deal with reality? Ladies and gentlemen, I have a shock for you. You don't. None of us do. Each and every one of us does, in a sense, deal with reality. But more accurately, we deal with our individual perception of reality. Would you agree? So what happens is kind of neat. When you're taking notes in front of a prospect or client or a colleague in a job interview, it doesn't matter. The perception is that you're more intelligent. They will always assume as much. So I'm with, I'll tell you what, I'm with the note takers. If you took out a pad and paper while I was saying that, you're still good for seven points. <laughs> Super learning. Tell you there are six things you need to know. I'll give you all 11. Got the picture? I'm going to violate your cognitive structure. Number two, I'm looking at the role of emotion in your life. So the bottom line here, and I'll guarantee you this is true in every field I work. I go into the National Football League. And I'm working with their sales staff. They sell media, marketing, all of this stuff. And even they agree with this. When you're working with another individual in the workplace, client or prospect, 
They have to buy you as an individual before they will agree to buy anything from you. Whether you're selling a policy, a way of doing business, a way of conducting business, it doesn't matter. If they buy you, they'll buy what you have to offer. So I'm looking at the role of emotion in communication. I use a system called Educomedy. I will throw some humor at you. If you think what I say is funny, laugh madly. If you don't think it's funny, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. I've tested the material. And finally, I'm gonna end with this one. One hour with me and you will not be comfortable with another human being for days. <laughs> when I'm done with you, you're gonna analyze everything. All right, we went into a handshake and let me congratulate the ladies in the audience. I'm gonna single you out. You have a set of skills far superior to that of the males. And you're sitting there going, ha uh -huh, tell me something I don't know. Okay, let me tell you what it is. When you and I meet for the first time, we're gonna look each other in the eyes, right? There are four things that go into a handshake. Lead with the right, use direct eye contact, show your teeth, all right? I know, smile, but we're technical, show your teeth. And the fourth one is you give a verbal greeting. So when you're all, and realize the energy level in the room when you were all touching, touch creates energy. There is an electrical transfer that occurs. So you're doing all this and it takes up all your information, but big news, there's something men do when meeting women for the first time. It's rude, we can't help ourselves. I wanna explain what we do and why we do it. For some reason, guys, women are offended when we walk up to them and do this. Hello. <laughs> we will do a full body scan, right? I want you women to know we're not trying to be rude. There are cone-shaped cells in the eye of the female that are not present in the eyes of the male. What I want you ladies to know is that when you are with a male and you're 18 inches apart and he's looking you in the eyes, he can't read your name tag. He can't see your name tag. I mean, your head's not floating in space, but we do not have anywhere near the peripheral vision of the average female. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if you are a male and you're looking in the eyes of another person 18 inches away, you have the peripheral vision capacity of the common groundhog, all right? Those cute little grass eaters on the side of the road. Now, you guys go home and try to sell this bill of goods to your wife, she's not buying. Check this out. She's looking at you from 18 inches away. She has cone-shaped cells in her eyes. They see in this fashion. So her peripheral vision is so good that it's very unlikely I would find a female in the room who at 18 inches looking you in the eyes could not describe your belt buckle in detail. It would be extremely rare. And the number is about 70% of women this far away looking you in the eyes can describe the tops of your shoes. Here's the deal. Men listen with their ears. Women listen with their eyes. We have a phenomenon called women's intuition. I don't believe in magic. Women are so good at reading body language and see so accurately that they pick up information. That is, hear me clearly, always more emotionally revealing and always more emotionally accurate than what we say. So tremendous advantage. Not only that, women took the course. Do you remember taking the course, ladies? You were five. You sat down one day and Aunt Susan came over and said, put those knees together, little girl. And they began to train you on how to behave in public. 
Now, you may not think that's a big deal at age five, but you had brothers who at nine years old were going, where are we going for dinner? <laughs> nobody spoke to them. There was nobody home there. <laughs> so, wow, what's going on? In a handshake. Let's start with the right hand. All right? I say, hi, how are you? The right hand is a tremendous amount of information. Let me give you an idea how this works. The appearance of the hand, okay? Fingernails painted, fingernails trimmed, clean, dirty. What do we got? The appearance of the hand will give you some information. The texture of the hand. You're meeting in a professional setting. You feel calluses. Yet you know I'm a doctor. Hang on a second. If you feel calluses, what does that tell you? This is what I tell every salesperson I've ever worked with. Find the source of the calluses. You'll have my business for the rest of your life. Whether I'm a rock climber, I love gardening, I work on engines on the weekend, this is where my heart is. So the appearance of the hand, the texture of the hand, the temperature, right? Cold hand, lupus, no, not necessarily. <laughs> it's possible. Warm hand, cold hand, you're getting some information. Help me out. There's one thing everybody knows. If you shake my hand and the palm is wet, what does that tell you about me? I'm nervous. No. But I'm going to refine that. You could be right. I want to refine it so you have a little bit more accurate read. Now, the palm is the second part of the human anatomy to perspire when it is warm. When that body is warm, the first thing to perspire is the armpits. The second is the hand. Now, on a dog, it would be the nose and then between the pads on the paw. So we're very similar to other mammals. What I want you to know is this, that the human palm has a very unique characteristic. It will perspire when it is cold. If you shake a cold, wet hand, it is a 100% accurate indicator of anxiety or nervousness. If the hand is warm, we're in Florida, goodness. If I'm outside waiting for my car and you shake my hand and it's wet, it could be one of three things. One, I'm nervous. Two, I'm hot. Three, I have just sneezed. You gotta pay attention. <laughs> All right? So you've got to be able to read context factors into what's going on here. Appearance, texture, the firmness of the grasp. Listen clearly. This will help you tremendously in your work. It's completely counterintuitive. You work with people with high net worth, right? You work with people who have high social status, right? Here is how you pick it out like that. Accuracy, 90%. The firmness of the grasp in a handshake is inversely related with the social status, the net worth, and the personal power with the individual you are meeting. Did you hear me clearly? It's contrary to what most of you believe. The firmness of the grasp is inversely related. So let me phrase it in a manner that it'll make sense to you. I meet you for the first time. My net worth is $41.7 million. I'm lying. Do you really see me giving you a bone crusher to make a big first impression? You're lucky to get an index finger, dude. So the softer the handshake, by far, the higher the social status, personal power, and net worth. Sound about right? Fascinating. Welcome to my world. The firmness of the grasp is inversely related with the personal power and social status. There is a subculture. 
So I go up to Breckenridge or some of these places in Colorado and I say that and they're like, what? Because there's a subculture of these locations where people are very athletic and it's all high net worth. They're going to have a different experience. But in general, this is what I'm expecting to see. Softer the handshake, higher the social status. All right. Let's get into the left hand. What's going on there? Hi, good to meet you. Watch the left arm. I'll do it again. Did you see what happened there? Nothing. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm neutral. I'm meeting you. I'm meeting you for the first time. I'm not fired up about the event. All right? There are four response patterns I'm going to look for. And guys, look me in the eyes. You don't want to go in looking down there in a handshake. That'll send a message. Look me in the eyes. Train your peripheral vision to look for gross motor behavior. 70%, I'm sorry, it should be like 65 to 70% of the time, I'm neutral. Hi, nice to meet you. Fine. 5 to 10% of the time, you've got a live one. I got a problem you're going to, I need you to solve. If I come in and I'm motivated, what are you going to see? You're going to see this. Hi, good to meet you. Okay? Notice there's a slight body lean, but the big one is, Body tension is thrown to the opposite arm. Look for a locked elbow. That's going to be the most accurate indicator. I'm going to see hands crunched. I'm going to see fists. Sometimes I see people crunch up their fingers. When I see energy going to the far side of the body, the interpretation I want you to consider is I've got a live one. This person's highly motivated. All right? Let me see how good you are with emotions. Everybody, what is the opposite of love? Okay, help me out. What is the opposite of love? Different answer. Indifference, we have a winner. Love and hate are both passions. I love you, you're gonna see this. I hate you, you're really gonna, it might even be up here. <laughs> so what I'm gonna say is a high level of emotion is gonna be shown with what we call a behavioral intensifier. I am coming in, I'm locking that arm. That might mean I really need your help. It might mean I'm really angry. Whatever it is, you're gonna have to deal with the emotion before you can deal with the content. Tell me about your situation. Turn it right over to them. All right? Because they've got the juice. They need to get it out. When I'm in sales, I tell people, speak a little faster, speak a little louder. And they're like, really? I'm like, try it. And I get calls from these people. They say, dude, we locked on. We're like, yeah, but I normally wouldn't have started at that level. So what I'm saying is when I come in and I'm neutral, I'm neutral. When I come in and I have behavior intensification, what you're going to find is there's an emotional connection here. I really need something. It could be positive or negative. I'm looking at passion. I'm not looking at specific types of passion. If I'm indifferent, this is what you get. If I'm passionate, you're going to see some kind of muscle response in the opposite side of the body. I'm not, and this person is not trying to be deceitful. Here's the deal. If you're taking notes, write this one down. It's an acronym, and the acronym is FIT, F-I-T. Every feeling, every intention, and every thought that that person has is going to be displayed through body language. My question is this. Are we astute enough to pick it up? Every feeling, every intention, and every thought. Unless you're a male under the age of 25, and then you don't have any of those things. <laughs> so I come in, I'm neutral. I come in, I'm motivated. What if I like you? One of my neighbors in the last few years has been a fellow you might recognize. His name is Lynn Swan. Lynn Swan was a wide receiver in the 1970s for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He won four Super Bowls with them. I think it might have been a Super Bowl MVP. He's in the Football Hall of Fame. And Swanee lived one street over from me. And if you knew Lynn Swan, you knew in Swickley, Pennsylvania, that at 5.15 every morning, 
he had a basketball game at the YMCA. When he finished the game, he'd sneak over to Starbucks because his wife didn't want him going there. He would sneak over and get a coffee. And I'd see him there because I'm there at 6 in the morning. And we know each other and we just give a hi. He taught my daughter how to do the, you know, a handshake like this. I said, dude, you are locked into the 70s, aren't you? But what I found was that people would walk into Starbucks, they'd go, oh my God, Lynn Swan. He's a very noticeable character. He actually ran for governor in Pennsylvania a few years ago. He's a television personality and he's very likable and he's a really nice guy. They'd come in and go, oh my God, Lynn Swan. And when they walked over, they almost all exhibited, watch the left arm, the following behavior. Hi, how are you? They would shake hands and while shaking, the left hand would move upward and towards him and then drop. Now think about how weird this is. Rodney, good to meet you. And the hand goes up and then down. What's going on there? They like you. This is an indication of liking. Is it a big deal? Yes. 1958, Yale University, Carl Hovland is researching this question. What must I project to clients, colleagues, everybody in the professional life in which I live? What must I project to initiate and maintain a long-term professional relationship? Number one, trustworthiness. Would you agree? Anybody disagree with that one? Do you have a verbal strategy for convincing me that you're trustworthy? Let me try it. Tell me if this works. I come into your office. I say, hi, Bill Atchison. I want you to know before we even begin to work together, I will never lie to you. What do you think, keeper? Oh, get out. It's called truth talk. In my work in drug interdiction with the U.S. Coast Guard, we're going to find a claim of honesty is preceded or followed by an attempt at deception about 85% of the time. Or as I tell my students at the University of Pittsburgh, you're about to experience a Whopper and you're not at Burger King, okay? So what happens is a claim of honesty is almost a red flag that's waving. So I can't tell you I'm honest, I have to behave a certain way. Number two, I have to see you as competent. If I perceive you as trustworthy and competent, we're two-thirds of the way there. The third factor is kind of intriguing. Oh, and by the way, competence. You can tell me you're competent. I'm going to go with my own assessment, thanks. I'll quote Ralph Waldo Emerson on this one. He said, what you are speaks so loudly, I cannot hear what you say. We're going to make a judgment. Your prospects and clients meeting you for the first time will make a judgment about your character in 13 seconds. Read the book Blink, B-L-I-N-K, by Malcolm Gladwell. In 13 seconds, they will have determined, believe it or not, 38 character and personality traits with a high degree of confidence. It's called the first impression. It will take about that long. So when I'm meeting somebody, I'm looking for these three factors. Trustworthiness, number one. Competence, number two. What's the third one? This may shock you. It's likability. Think about it. I trust you. I find you competent. And I like you. We're going to do business. Now, likability, is that nonverbal or verbal? Do you have to tell funny little stories and be cute? No. Likability is an interesting function. What we've determined in studies of sales is that likability is measured by the amount of time I commit to listening to you while you speak. We like people who listen to us. So I'm going to go through attending behaviors, how to be a good listener, and the number one most misunderstood behavior between men and women happens to be a listening behavior. You'll be amazed when you hear it. 
I mean, if you master nothing else from my talk, you go home with that one skill. You'll be known as a listening stud in the household. And no woman thinks that men are better listeners than women. But when I'm done with you, you're going to know it's a fact. Just kidding. I said that for the women. We are different, aren't we, ladies? Should I tell you the secrets of male and female communication? I might as well. Do you want to get that out of the way? Okay, men are very simple. It all comes down to one word. All male communication in this culture comes down to one thing, power. All of it. All right? So every single one of us in this culture is taught that in communication, we exert power. So a bunch of the bros and I will get together and we'll start throwing insults at each other, right? It's called playing the dozens. Now, women have a hard time with this concept because they're different. But the guys will get together. I can insult you guys and no one is offended because you know we don't mean it, right? We're looking to see who has the best insult. That's the winner of the game. <laughs> no, it is. You think I'm kidding. I'll go down to a preschool. I'll bring in three four-year-olds, line them up on the floor right in front of the stage and give each one a rubber ball that bounces. I'll say to the first kid, son, what can you do with that ball? He'll say, I can bounce it this high. How many of you think the next kid, upon hearing this, is going to say, I can bounce it lower than this kid? <laughs> that has never happened in our research. Number two is going to say, I will take out that light fixture. Whoa, looking good. Feeling bad for number three. There's not a lot left, but you got to ask him, son, what can you do with this ball? I said, I will take out number two. There's our winner. <laughs> so I'm going to sum it up for you real quickly. Men and women communicate differently. All male communications about personal power. You don't believe me. How many men do you know when lost will stop and immediately ask for directions? There are comedy, yeah, too, thank you, <laughs> in the country. There are comedy skits about men who will not ask for direction. Why? We're not going into a Sunoco station and saying to a high school kid, dude, you're smarter than me. I need your help. Not going to do it. GPS was invented so we could avoid this. So men are all about personal power. We will one up each other all day long. No one is offended because you know we don't mean it. We will insult each other all day long. No one, he could insult my wife, I'll actually be happy. I'll say, dude, that was awesome. <laughs> Men will insult each other all day long. No one is offended because you know we don't mean it. Women are different. Women will compliment each other all day long. They don't mean it either. <laughs> they don't. My wife says to me, that's a lie. We mean it. I'm like, you don't mean it. We're at a Christmas party. I live in a cul-de-sac. There's about 20 homes. We're at a Christmas party. One of my neighbors comes over. She goes, Paula, that's my wife's name. Paula, do you think this dress is too short? Listen to my wife's response. This is the most neutral thing I've ever heard. But of course it worked. And the woman went away hearing what she wanted to hear. Do you think this dress is too short? And my wife said, are you kidding? That dress is gorgeous. <laughs> I'm like, well, what about the length? What about she was asking, but she's got great legs. Talk to me. The woman starts to walk away and my wife turns to me and says, God knows I wouldn't wear it if I had those legs. And I'm like, ha ha, I gotcha. I revisit that regularly. 
but we're different, all right? Men are all about personal power. I'm gonna be very fair about this. All female communication in this culture boils down to one word. You women are under the false impression, the false impression that communication, the goal of communication is to understand. <laughs> no guy cares about understanding, right? But that is the goal for women. Now, let me show you the difference between being male, we all insult each other, and being female, all right? If you're a female, the goal of communication is to understand, right? Let's take that word understand and unpack it a little bit. It's a compound word, right? Two words, under and stand. What's another word for stand? Think baseball. You get in the batter's box, you assume what? A stance. Stand or stance, they're mental or physical. Take a stand regarding an issue, you have a stance regarding a certain policy, right? What is the prefix for under? What ship goes under the water? A sub. Women communicate for substance. Whoa. We're busy insulting each other and who's got the best insult? It's a game. Women communicate for substance. Here's how it works. Men will talk about things. Women will talk about connections and relations among things. When I taught the communication process at the University of Pittsburgh, where they were lonely enough to vote me teacher of the year twice, I, my average class size, 240 students. I was on stage, man. I was doing stand-up comedy. They couldn't fire me. I had tenure. I was like, oh man, am I gonna fire? One day, like an idiot, the Pitt football team was playing Notre Dame. I said, Notre Dame's gonna crush you guys. I had the quarterback in my class. He goes, no, we got this. I'm like, ha, I'll make you a deal, dude. If you win this game on Saturday, I will teach Monday's class in boxer shorts, all right? They won 38 to seven. <laughs> I'm on my way to class and somebody says, you got boxers on? I'm like, I forgot. I went into the Pitt bookstore and I got a pair of Pitt boxer shorts, put them on over my jeans. I didn't tell them I wasn't gonna wear jeans. I went on a stage like, no, 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 that's not right. But I got away with it. But when I taught the communication process class, I wanted to show them live the difference between being male and being female. Here is what I did. I average class size, bigger than this. Amphitheater, always. 230, 240 students. My small class is like 180. Now, mind you, 180 males and females age 18 to 22. I always treated them with the utmost respect. So I'd say, all right, dummies, we're gonna do an experiment. I want to take out a sheet of paper. Now it'd be like, change to a fresh page in your iPad. No, no. Get a new sheet of paper, write male or female on top of the page. And then I would spell male. Because one in four would write M-A-I-L thinking we were mailing it. All right, dummies, male is M-A-L-E. Gotcha, I still got M-A-I-L, just you got fewer of them. You have 60 seconds and we would videotape the class because they were cheating and we knew it and we wanted proof. I'd say, here's what we're gonna do. Write down as many colors as you can, go. And they would start writing. All right, help me out. How many colors did the average male come up with, sir? 10? Higher? A little bit higher, how much? 12. They came up with 13. I've had males in my audiences around the country say, there aren't 13 colors. Apparently, not Crayola people, you know what I'm saying? There's 128, I have proof. But, I mean, 13, this is way higher than our expectations. 
They cheated. Let me show you what they did. Average male student, I'd say, write down as many colors as you can, go. And they would. They'd look right down. And men do a thing called dichotomy thinking. Do you know what that is? If they say the first color is white, what's the next color, everybody? Yeah, they always go to the opposite. So I'd get white, black, I got red, I got blue, I got green, I got yellow. I believe I'm done. Orange. Oh, dude, orange. Um, a, a, like a light green. <laughs> The wall is beige, and I would get B-A-G-E, beige. What a bunch of losers. One year, they, we had a green board, you know, chalkboard, and they changed it. And I went in, and we had a dry erase marker board, and it had like an aluminum trim thing around it. And I remember on video, we got this one dude sitting on the aisle. He's like, you know, he does the, the big eight or the big 10, and then he goes, Silver. And so if he said silver, what was the next color, everybody? Gold. Gold. Yes, silver. Silver. He looks up and mouths it. I'm like, wow. No woman had fewer than 25 colors. Four women had over 70 in 60 seconds. Yeah, what? The average for females in 60 seconds was 42. 42 colors in 60 seconds. Granted, most of them are lipstick shades. No, I'm kidding. I'm messing with you. You know what they did? It could be January 7th, and I'd be there in a polo shirt. I had a light orange polo shirt. And I would say, men only, after I did the writing exercise, men only, dude, what color is the shirt? The whole room, orange. I'd say, ladies, help them out. Tangerine. I had it as peach. I was thinking coral. <laughs> Right? You guys are amazing. The guys are like, coral, C-H-O-R-A-L-E? How, how the hell is that a color? But you see what's happening. We process information differently. Men listen with their ears. Women listen with their eyes. They're making fine distinctions. They're picking up emotional signals. So in a handshake, let's go over the left arm, left hand. Hi, good to meet you. I'm neutral. Hi, good to meet you. I'm motivated. You've got a live one. Find out what's the motivation. Positive or negative, you've got a deal. All right. Hi, nice to see you. The gradient measure of lifting the hand. Th think of how weird that is. Bill, good to see you. That's pretty weird. They're reaching up, and the best we can determine if it's two males is the first male saying, I love you, man, but we're not going there. So he's moving upward for additional touch, realizing it's probably not appropriate. Okay. I didn't talk about the two-handed handshake. What about the two-handed handshake? It is called a politician's handshake. In a first meeting in a professional setting, a two-handed handshake is perceived as a false attempt to accelerate rapport. You're seen as a player. You might be the most sincere, touchy-touchy person in the world. Fine, stay with it. But I want you to be aware, for a lot of people, it's off-putting, okay? If I'm from Long Island, notice how I pronounced it, that two-handed handshake is just like, thanks for the heads up. <laughs> All right. What do you not want to see from the left arm in a handshake? Bill, good to meet you. Wow. He came in, he buried it in his pocket on approach. My hands are in my pockets and I take one out. Big deal. If I actively engage in concealing one hand, you're dealing with a hidden agenda. You've got yourself a psychological game player. Am I on the ball? I always wonder. I mean, I find this research, and mind you, about 80% accuracy on this one. 
I'm working with a guy from Overland Park, Kansas. I've been with this guy for 17 years, working, doing presentations. I said, Dave, what is the best tip I've ever given you? He said, he went like this immediately. I said, really? He said, oh yeah. I said, tell me about it. Cause I'm always concerned. I'm giving out data. Is it for real? Is it actually happening in the real world? He said, when you taught me this one, it's about three years ago, I heard that for the first time. I've only seen it eight times in the subsequent three years. Every time I saw this behavior, the person I was meeting wanted a cash payment under the table to do business with my firm. Eight for eight. That works for me. So I'm on high alert. Right away, I'm gonna start looking for additional cues. All right, I always look for a cluster of behaviors. Let me talk about deception. Do some of you do hiring for a living? I mean, that's a big part of what you do. If you make a mistake there, that's pretty costly, isn't it? So let's take a look at deception and let's look at what we're gonna, first of all, you've got that whole handshake assessment thing going on. Um, what I want you to know is that right hand is gonna give you a lot of data also. Let me tell you how it works real quickly. Cooperator, vertical handshake, medium muscle tension, and we modulate. You're a little more firm, I match it. You soften up just a shade. Okay, you, we're fine. This is a cooperator that says you and I are equals. It is not the only handshake you're gonna get, as you probably know. When I come in and say, hi, good to meet you. Downward turn palm, dominator handshake. I work with the Academy of Trial Lawyers. An elite group, look at their website. They describe themselves as an austere body of legal professionals. They are elected to this group and they have to be accepted by the group in order to be part of the adventure. 34% give a dominator handshake. They're saying, hi, Bill, good to meet you. Now, when I get a dominator, first of all, I'm working with attorneys. What does that mean? A, I have been prepaid. <laughs> it's just what I do. Number two. When I get a dominator, okay, I, want, I have nothing to lose. I always step into their personal space, put an arm around them. Good to meet you. They hate me. They stiffen. I had one guy take half a step back and realize, hey, I'm not retreating. He froze just like this. And mind you, I've done this like 100 times now. So what I want you to do is say, oh, thanks for the heads up. You're socially aware, a signifier that says I am socially superior to you. Thank you. Oh, you have to be a little insecure to kind of do that, don't you? I mean, that's my guess. What we're gonna find is this is a cooperator, you and I are equals, a dominator, I need to send a signal. You get a rare person who gives an upward turn palm. That is a submissive handshake. It shows a little bit of discomfort with the system. Expect it from females over the age of 60. You're not likely to get it from many people. Now, you go into different cultural areas. Hispanic cultures are very firm on the rules of a handshake. If you're meeting someone who's higher in social class, which we are ready to, readily acknowledging, they will literally put you into that position. I get it all the time with people that I work with, okay, because I work around the world. So what I want you to know is that when you get, uh, what's your favorite handshake, ladies? You ever get that dead fish? They caught it right out here in the harbor and they're bringing it to you? You go to meet someone and they say, hi, nice to meet you. That is the most powerful handshake in the culture. This, this guy is not a wimp. Now, when you get a limp-wristed handshake, you have to move to the eye contact to make an accurate interpretation. Let me tell you how it works. We change generationally. 
You don't publicly say, okay, this is the handshake that's appropriate with women. What we're gonna find is if you're an older male, you are acknowledging someone's femininity and that's you did something awkward like that. They're not likely to change. They may catch up to the rest of the galaxy, but here's how you can tell if they're sincere people or game players. If they give you a dead fish and maintain eye contact with you, they are incompetent. Accept it as incompetence, it's well-intentioned. If, however, you get a limp-wristed handshake and they're looking at the artwork or lighting in the room, you're getting a dismissive handshake. And the message is this, I am so socially superior to you. I just want you to understand your place here. Remember, the firmness of the grass is inversely related with the social status and net worth and personal power. So a limp-wristed handshake, you move to the eyes. If they're on you, incompetent. If they're looking around the room, it's a game. There's screaming dominance, okay? So I want you to have that kind of information. You basically, what's the rule about personal power? Do you know? What's the ultimate rule of personal power? It is this. You break the rules with impunity. You break the rules and there are no consequences. Let me explain, because you already know this. You know it subconsciously. Seven males at an early morning business meeting. Six are in suits and ties. One is dressed for a golf game. Who is the owner of this company? Right, watch for the person who breaks the rules. They either follow the rules to a T or they're happy violating. One thing they are not is average. So I'm looking for rule violations in appearance, rule violations in behavior, or complete comportment with the rules. It's gonna work either way. I work with Rolls-Royce, what do I find? I'm at dinner with the chief executive officer of Rolls-Royce. I'm in Bath, England. We're at a restaurant where we have three people waiting just on our table. We have a sommelier, someone who handles the wine and stands there through your entire meal, rather imposing. We have a professional cook and we have a waiter. Everyone in the, in the restaurant is dressed in a suit and a tie. And in comes this guy with shoulder length hair, a leather jacket, a white collared shirt, blue jeans, and cowboy boots. And I thought, he probably broke down and was looking for directions. And he speaks to the maitre d' and the maitre d' motions to our table and starts to walk him over. It was Sir Richard Branson, owner of Virgin Group. All right, so, or chief CEO, whatever. But the bottom line is one group is following the rules, one group is violating the rules with impunity. He's that guy and he gets away with it. So it's always important to understand what those rules are. Let me show you what personal power looks like. We'll get back into deception in a moment. There is a power profile I look for in men. And it's four behaviors, it's a cluster of behaviors, and this screams personal power. Now, you're going to say to yourself, how did I not pick this one up? Because when you're done with this model, you will not walk into a group of individuals without seeing this boldly. Four behaviors clustered together scream high social status, personal power, and net worth. There's one divergence, it's the third indicator, I'll explain when we get there. Behavior number one. I'm looking for relaxed muscle tone. So you tell me, more personal power, social status, and net worth in this position, or would you go with this guy? It is laughable. I heard a snort. You're with me, okay? So what we're gonna find is muscle tension is a lower class event. What's the message with relaxed muscle tone? You know what? 
I have no fear. It shows the absence of fear. Behavior number two, it's emotional disengagement. Not emotional detachment, but disengagement. Minimization of emotional responses. Now, women, you're very good at reading body language. In fact, you're terrific at reading body language. There is a flaw. I want you to be aware of it. The flaw is called facial primacy. Women tend to read facial expression and weigh it too heavily. Why is it a problem? Because I control facial expressions, you know, consciously. You've done it. You have people in the workplace you absolutely dislike. Family members you're not real wild about. You'll still say, Edward, good to see you. Okay? So when you're looking at emotional disengagement, do not use facial expression. Use body lean. Far better indicator, far more accurate indicator. So the bottom line here is, in general terms, the further back he leans, the higher the net worth and social status. More social status in this position? Or would you go with this guy? All right, this is blue collar. This is white collar. Net worth factor might be the same. Status factor is going to be very different. So I'm looking at relaxed muscle tone, pronounced backward lean. So far, I haven't done you any big favors. I've described a relaxed male. Third indicator screams high social status, high net worth, high personal power. This is where males are separated from females. And the third indicator is expansiveness. He takes up a lot of space. He gets into a boardroom situation. He's imposing on everybody around, pulls over. I'm too short for this adventure with this chair. But I mean, you're looking at a guy who's doing one of these. What's up with you boys? All right. Now, let's take a look at it. Expansiveness, even the hands. I'm going to give you a remarkably accurate tip. You walk into a social situation in which I suspect most of you work. Watch the hands. I'm talking about expansiveness. When I walk into a room and I see a person with fingertips extended and displayed, high social status, probably high net worth, probably high personal power, certainly high expectations. What do most males do? This. Hand concealment. I'm showing insecurity, reluctance, and fear. I'm going to walk into a room, and I expect a male on a love seat or sofa to be spread out all over the place. If he spreads out and covers the hands, he's acting. If the hands are extended and splayed, there you go. This is confidence. Okay? So expansiveness. Now let's go over the rules. This is where blue and white collar separate. Average male in our culture sits like this, and mind you, I have had ankle surgery, a complete ankle reconstruction, so I can't wear hard sole leather shoes. Average male under 25, would you agree? It's all about masculinity. What's the message? I can't get them any closer. <laughs> this behavior is considered vulgar everywhere outside North America. You sit like this in England, they'll say, dude, cover up. People are trying to eat over here. So what we're going to find is an age indicator will move you into another zone. If you're not sitting like this at 18, I'm going to ask, what's wrong with you? Did you not read the manual? But you're going to hit 38 years of age. You will have 3.5 children. No, it's 2.8 children. You'll have a dog named Fluffy. You came to work in a Sienna minivan. One morning, a couple of years ago, you put the leg up and it didn't make it. It's now to the outside of the knee. Dang, hips are not as flexible as they used to be. Feels good, still looks reasonably masculine. 
I'm 35. Age indicator. Now, I'm looking at expansiveness. This is not an indicator that we're looking at. If you've got blue collar high net worth, and you'll see it, right? I own a waste management company, but I'm working at your resort. I'm visiting your resort. He's sitting on the edge of the chair like this. These knees out to the side scream expansiveness. What's the message? You better pay attention, Jack, so I can buy or sell this place. <laughs> I work with an organization of waste management owners. They come in tank tops. They all have body hair. I said to the organizer, what, what would you say is the average net worth in this room? Because they're screaming net worth body indicators. He says, we did a survey last year. The average individual in this room has a net worth of $44 million. And the people at the low end are somewhere between 8 and 10. Now notice, I'm not using relaxed, lean, and so forth. This is entrepreneurial, high net worth, high social status, well, relative high social status. In the business world, high social status. But we're looking at high personal power and high net worth. Knees out to the side. This screams pretty loudly, all right? And he didn't give a damn. He is on high alert. Eventually, if he runs his company long enough, he'll figure it out, and you'll see him sitting like this at some point. Now. White collar high net worth. What's the ultimate rule of power? You break the rules, right? The rule is expansiveness. Watch what happens when I break the expansiveness rule. High social status, high personal power, high net worth. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the aristocratic leg cross. It is the single most accurate indication of high personal power, status, and net worth. I mean, I'm at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Got an audience of about 8,000 people. And a lot of women were in the front, and they were older. And I, I sat on stage. As I began to describe it, I went like this. And you could see the heads for about three or four rows going, oh, yeah. They knew. They listened with their eyes. High net worth, high personal power, white collar version. OK? Fourth indicator is kind of an interesting tell. Look for body asymmetry. So we're on a line down the center of the body. I expect one leg up, one leg down, one arm up, one arm down. I'm looking for asymmetrical body posturing. More personal power in this position, or would you go with this fellow? You're going to go with asymmetry, typically. Okay? There are two symmetrical behaviors that show personal power. One is steepling. Fingertips together, palms apart. Look closely. People come into your office and do this. They're trying to send you a message about their status. You don't have to respond to it. I'm a big believer that power is a zero-sum game. Not. Your power doesn't come at my expense. I have my own personal power base. I appreciate the exposure of this, this symbol. I'll respond accordingly. So when someone steeples, I want you to know, they actually will steeple in height on their body equivalent with their position in their own minds and in an organization. At Chase Manhattan Bank in 1994, Columbia University research indicated that presidents and vice presidents steepled in the face and chin region, middle-level middle managers steepled desk high, and that women actually steepled downward and outward. This projects personal power. If you don't believe me, we do studies of single photographs. So we'll take a photograph of a woman in this position, a second photograph in this position, and say, in which photograph is she acting in her capacity as bank president? And 73% choose the steeple. 
It's subconscious. You don't even know what it means, and yet you respond to it. Fascinating. Women in power. Women, is there any place in the culture you get to sit with a pronounced backward lean? There are actually two. The beach and the boudoir. All right? Don't recommend it in the workplace. You're stuck. And you're stuck because you have to sit with an erect skeletal structure or it's seen as inappropriate. In 1931, there was a woman who sat with a pronounced sideways lean. Do you remember that photo? Her name was Mae West. The caption of the photo was, why don't you come up and see me sometime? Okay, that was, and you know the photo, most of you have seen the photo, certainly know what I'm talking about. That is how scandalous sideways or backwards behavior is for a female. You are trained to sit erect and to maintain that posture. It's a big advantage for you. The average man is 5'10", the average woman is 5'5". When you sit erect and he doesn't, you get a relative height advantage, and it works. Number two, we're looking at Relaxed muscle tone, backward lean, no, that's not happening. Relaxed muscle tone, if you're erect, it doesn't register, does it? Not really, not like it does for males. So that's not a factor. You're kind of stuck. Women are allowed three leg positions, right? In our culture, you get the four point, which is two points for ankles and knees. You get the leg cross, which is never anything but this. And you get what we call the wrap, not recommended for you men, when one leg is put out to the side and the other leg is wrapped around it four times. <laughs> I'm on film, I never should have done that one. They'll take stills, I can just tell. So what we're gonna see happening is that you have a lot of restrictions in your behavior. Be advised. I'm very big on arms away from the body. If you want to sit in this position, that's fine. But if you're sitting at a table, hands in full view, I'm going to give you a rule for males and females, absolutely accurate and on the mark. Movement and power are inversely related. Contrary to what you thought. Movement and power are inversely related. I'm standing before you, I'm moving only my hands. Am I projecting power this way? Or does it go to the guy who says, hard hit a moving target, woohoo? No, not at all. What we're going to find is that expertise in every field is measured by economy of motion. I don't want you to look dead, but I want you to know that fidgeting or any personal behavioral movement minimizes your personal power. So I'm a big person in terms of recommending hands in full view at all times. You move them functionally with a gesture and gestures occur with the elbows away from the body. Don't do this. It just tells me you don't mean it. So I want a defined gesture or something functional like handing over an image, a contract, whatever it is you're doing. When you're interviewing, let's get into deception. There are two types of liars. I'll buzz through this real quickly. There, one thing that people have a hard time with is they don't distinguish between the types of liars. There are competent liars. There are incompetent liars, okay? An incompetent liar is pretty obvious. They stutter, they stammer. I mean, let's start from the top and work our way down. Low level of eye contact, they can't look you in the eyes, right? They fidget, they stammer, because when you tell the truth, you activate six centers of the brain. When you tell a lie, you activate 12 to 14 centers of the brain. It's a much more intellectually involved event, and you will secrete adrenaline. That causes an emotional situation we call internal arousal. So the actual secretion of adrenaline is how we pick up body language indicators that you're lying. 
All right? You can't look me in the eye. You might have eye fluttering. I ask a direct question. You go, I, I, I think so. All right? So your eyes are fluttering like this. You use sideward glance. You never look up. You never, hardly ever catch a liar looking upwards. So it's downward glance, low level of eye contact, under 30% if you want to put a number on it. When you lie, you secrete adrenaline. When you secrete adrenaline, you have neuron tingling from the mid-nose to upper lip region. So what does that mean? Lip licking, hard swallowing, facial touching. Here's the deal. I ask you for a favor. You look at me and say, you know what? I can do it. I'm good with that. Or you do this. You know what? I think I can do it. You even head nodding to confuse me. You put your hand near your face. You're responding to that subconscious neuron tingling. Any hand to face behavior above the lips indicates one of two things. A, you're lying to me, or B, you think I'm lying to you. If a listener, is this a good listening behavior? I'm listening to you in a job interview. Would you hire this person? Why not? Would you hire this person? Don't. Hate to be rude, but here's the deal. If I'm listening to you, I mean, even Rodin had the foresight to put his statue, the thinker, in this position, right? This is good listening behavior. A tongue depressor at the University of Michigan in a soundproof, lightproof lab activated the oligodendroglia, the smallest connecting neuron tissue in the brain. Hand to chin behavior signifies deep thought. Hand to chin behavior with a finger over the lip indicates cynicism. One finger may not be a loud message. How about two or the more transparent turn? If I'm lying, I'll self-edit. I might talk through my hand. If I perceive you to be lying, the signal goes up like you're doing to me right now. I know you're just testing. Okay? So what we're going to find, and if you think someone is denying you or rejecting your message, change your message. You'll see the hand go down, go back to the original message. It goes back up. You just got a confirmation. How sleek, how sleek is that? So incompetent liars, stuttering, stammering, sweating, turning red, turning white. I mean, oh my goodness. If you can't identify an incompetent liar, I have news for you. There's more than one incompetent in the room. A competent liar is a skilled individual. Knowing you're looking for a low level of eye contact, they will maintain over 90% eye contact. Too much eye contact in any case deception. One of the first things they're going to do is violate you in terms of touch or closeness. So when they meet, I remember meeting a woman in Lake Tahoe. I'd never met her before. She came over and hugged me. I said, I'm about to be taken advantage of. And I absolutely was. Okay, so we have rules that protect us when we first meet people. A violation of those rules tells me you're trying to get inside the circle, you're going to try to abuse. You're going to try to do something that I would not normally want to agree to. So too much touch, too much closeness, um, absolutely intriguing is that people who are competent liars are going to mismanage space. So you and I would stand and speak eight feet apart. That's totally unnatural. They're completely comfortable with it. You're going to see too much eye contact. You're going to hear truth talk. They're going to be a claim of honesty. Or when you ask, is that true? You're going to hear, instead of an acknowledgement, one way or the other, you hear, why would I lie? They're talking about motive. They're not talking about whether or not they're being honest. Okay? You won't see lip licking and lip biting. What you're going to see, instead of hesitations like vocal non-fluency, stuttering and stammering, you're going to hear what we call hyperfluency. Hey, if it sounds slick, you know what? It was practice and they absolutely mastered it. One of the indicators that's remarkable, and I outed a person who was uh, embezzling money from her company. 
They all thought she was honest. I said, I really think we need to investigate this person. And they laughed at me until about eight months later when they found that she had embezzled $182,000 in a small woman's shelter for abused women and children. So that was a real costly place for this error to be made. You see, when she spoke to the board of trustees and I was a board member, she would turn her body towards an open window or door. In working with police departments on polygraph examinations, what we found was that dishonest people very often cue. All right, so I'll give you a couple of ideas. If you are going to have a lie detector test, and for some people they actually do that for a job interview, here are two things you should avoid. Number one, do not under any circumstances take a religious article with you to the polygraph examination. We found that people who brought uh, Muslim prayer beads, rosary beads, the guy with the eight foot crucifix. We had the Bible, we had the Quran. We had all any religious article. We'd have a person come in and say, I brought my lucky stuff. Think about it. If you're telling the truth, do you need any help? No. Any talisman was an indication that they were about to attempt to deceive the system. The other thing we found was that lower body movement. We taught police departments to keep an open window or door. When a person sat down, you'd start the interview. I worked in a very famous uh, rape case here in the state of Florida. And I said, first question, I want you to ask, you know, that's a very nice tie. Is that the first tie you looked at this morning when you got dressed? And the prosecutor looked at me and said, are you out of your mind? I said, I want to create a baseline. They're not expecting that question. What I wanted was to have him say, okay, upper left, upper right is my memory center, upper left is my word center. So if he looks upper right, upper left, and then answers, that's what I want to see with every question. I want to see memory, language, construction, and speech. All I saw through the entire trial was looking upper left, looking upper left, looking upper left. Never saw this person look upper right. Either that part of his brain was absent or he had been thoroughly coached to lie or to create a manufactured story, which is what we ultimately believed. And he did get no, <laughs> the guy was acquitted. He got to walk. But it's really a fascinating thing to look at deception. What we saw was that when people started to lie, they would turn their lower body towards that open door or window. When they finished speaking, they would actually come back to their original posture. 94% accurate as an indication of deception. Is this a rare behavior? No, not at all. When I taught at the University of Pittsburgh and had an 11 to 11.50 class three mornings a week at 11.49, I could have as many as 300 students sitting like this. Come on, bro, let us go. Come on, come on, come on. Okay, we signal subconsciously every feeling, intention, and thought. Listening skills. I think attending skills, which is what we call listening skills, are incredibly important. Now, men, this one's for you. I throw darts at you, I throw darts at the ladies at different times. Okay, it's fun. This could change your life. Most of you, if you've had any sales training or any customer service training, have been taught the following. Mirror the prospect or client to have instant rapport. Have you all heard that one? Yeah, Tony Robbins, baby. Mirror the prospect or client. So let me ask this question a different way. How would surrendering myself to the random emotional state an angry customer has coming to me, how would that enhance my situation? It doesn't. 
In sales, we found that 63% of the time, it actively worked against the salesperson. I had people who came in, and I know they just had a fight with their spouse on the way to the office. They say, go ahead, I'm listening. How many of you would mirror this one? <laughs> or this one? My personal favorite, New Jersey. One of those four or five story campus buildings. I'm at a Merrill Lynch office in New Jersey. This guy says, take a look at how I behave with this prospect. I want you to give me an analysis. I said, sure, I'm here for the afternoon. I'll take a look. They all have glassed in offices. Here's what the prospect says. They meet, he says, hey, good to meet you. Tell you what, you go ahead and do what you gotta do. I'm gonna watch the ducks out here in this pond, but I'm listening. And he turned and looked out the window through the whole conversation. Mirroring that one would have meant what? They go swimming later? <laughs> Here's the deal. Six behaviors you should engage in that will always present you as trustworthy, competent, and likable. Number one, high, high levels of eye contact. High levels of eye contact. On average, women are at 81%, men are at 77 That's where you should be. Under 70%, they start to question your sincerity. Under 30%, they no longer question. They assume you're not sincere. So high level of eye contact. Oh, by the way, ladies, what you need to know is that you must break eye contact once a minute when transacting business with a male. Men will see sustained eye contact as attraction because we are lonely people and that is what we do. <laughs> I'm not lying. There's a service call you don't want to deal with. So what I want you to do is functionally, but don't you know, look behind them, but just look down at some paperwork or something. Functionally break eye contact about once a minute, just for a dart, just an eye, eye gaze away and back. Because sustaining eye contact will send the wrong message after a certain period of time, okay? So number two, smiling. Smiling's great, hi, good to see you. Smile when you meet people, it's very important. The bad news is you tend to subconsciously smile when giving negative information. All right, how does that work? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, what you're gonna see, I work with a lot of people in financial services, they'll say, oh, this performs really well. And they're head nodding and somebody say, you know, that's great, has it ever had a down year? Oh yeah, but it was very slim. <laughs> okay, what happens is we confuse people. Most people are one-tiered thinkers. They're gonna either read the body language or they're going to listen to the language. What you don't wanna do is give a mixed signal. Oh yeah, we've had down years. Okay, what you want to do, and you're, when the information is positive, you smile. When the information has a negative aspect to it, because almost everything has some negativity, you head nod somberly. There have been down years, but they've been minimal, and we've rebounded very quickly, okay? Smile when positive, head nod when there's a negative aspect to it, whatever it is you're sharing. Number four, now I'm going into the subconscious stuff. What's your body lean when you work with people? Let me give you three options, okay? I'll do it sideways here. Option one is arrogance. So what's your problem? <laughs> what's the message? You and I work together? What do I care? It's good for you. Can't do that. How about dramatic forward lean? A pronounced forward lean indicates what? People pleasing. Dude, I will say anything to resolve this conflict. Not necessarily where you wanna be. The ideal position for listening, attending, is gonna be an erect skeletal structure with a slight forward lean. So when that client comes in with a problem, you give about three or four inches, slight forward lean. Anything more, you're a people pleaser, you're lowering your personal power. A slight forward lean means I'm committed to listening, let me hear what you have to say. 
When they're done, you go up again. When you speak, you give a slight forward lean. What are you doing? You're managing space a little bit better, increasing eye contact, eliminating obstacles to the side. You're showing focus and commitment without agreeing to anything. Very important. Number five, this is a focus for women. Hands in full view at all times. And this is especially true for women, but men also. I'm a big believer in hands on the table or desk, away from the body, outside the frame of the body. You will secrete the chemical compound that projects personal power and competence when your hands and elbows are outside the frame of the body. When they come in, you will actually create, are you ready? About 70% more cortisol, an adrenal gland product that says, I'm intimidated, I'm fearful, I'm insecure. You don't want that. Arms away from the body. Remember, movement and power is inversely related. This one's more important for men, less so for women because they don't see the factors. How many of you guys, when sitting down with a prospect or client, sitting in an interview, cross your legs? If you're crossing your legs, I want you to know that you are creating a barrier, an emotional barrier between you and the person with whom you're communicating. So you tell me, am I listening more to you now or would you go with now or would you go with now? Here's the deal. You do not cross your legs when communicating with another individual in a key situation in the workplace. One foot about four inches in front of the other. What you're doing is you're showing vulnerability. Oh, and guess what? You will absorb about 3% more information we've tested, and you'll retain about 8% more information that is shared in that communication. It increases retention. You go to be hypnotized. You cannot be hypnotized with your arms and legs crossed. First thing a hypnotherapist says is uncross your arms and legs. It's called neurological impingement. It's a problem. I told you I would get to the number one source of misunderstanding between men and women. This is it. Head nodding. Hard to believe, isn't it? Head nodding. Now, guys, we are linear thinkers. Men think one thought at a time. And yeah, it's almost always the same thought. Football. <laughs> The average woman, talk about your spouse, dude, pay attention. The average woman in the culture thinks four to six thoughts simultaneously. Would you agree? Look at the women there like, yeah, he understands us. Okay? So let me explain how this works. Head nodding is going to be a linear behavior for males. Men will head nod when they are indicating agreement or approval. That's typically the only reason we head nod. Is approval a big deal for men? What are we all about, ladies? Personal power, right? In a conversational study between 1,000 men and 1,000 women, going one-to-one, 70, hear me clearly, 72% of the time, when a man interrupted a woman, it was to render an opinion that was not solicited. Sound about right? Is it, I'm embarrassed for us. Guys. Women are all about what? Understanding. 61% of the time when a woman interrupted a man, it was to ask a question to clarify what was being discussed. We don't leave those channels very far. So how does head nodding work? Men head nod to show agree agreement or approval. Dude, this one's for you. When a woman, as a listener, nods her head, it actually means nothing. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I saw the face. 
There are eight reasons women head nod, two of which occur before you begin to speak. Help me out, guys. Why would a woman head nod before you begin to speak? Number one answer, she's giving you permission to speak and you didn't know you needed it. <laughs> Number two, she's showing readiness to listen. Number three, you've started speaking. She's showing attentiveness, all right? I am listening. Number four, I understand. Understanding is different for men and women. For a man, understanding almost always means agreement. For a woman, there's no connection, all right? In the female map, map of the cognitive structure of the female mind, understanding is here in Sarasota, and agreement is in Boca Raton, no connection. There's an alligator between the two, okay? So what do we got? We've got a woman who is socially aware and listens with her eyes. So she's going to head nod even when she disagrees with you because women will head nod to be seen as good listeners. Her inner dialogue could be loser, total loser. Smile and head nod. Think about it. There's not a guy in the room who hasn't been head nodded all the way to a no. And did you guys have a little confusion? You're like, B -b 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 that's what's going on. Women will head nod to show agreement. They will head nod to show a lot of things. My son, who's now 16 year old, is considered a genius. At age 10, he began taking mathematics classes at Carnegie Mellon University, a top 10 university in the world for mathematics. First class he took, algorithms. Algorithms. You know what I asked him? How do you spell it? <laughs> he came home. He was there for a week in the summer, overnight. I picked him up on Friday. I said, dude, what'd you learn about algorithms? You know what he says to me? Yeah, like you'd understand. <laughs> He's 10. He's this tall. He can do a Rubik's Cube in under a minute. I can throw it 60 feet. All right? So the kid's got some skills. But socially, eh, if you're a genius, you could be a weird person. At age 10, he's a weird person. He's in the fifth grade at his little school in North Allegheny, just north of Pittsburgh. They're the ones that said, we think he, he could take a class at Carnegie Mellon. Got the highest grade in the class, algorithm. Day before the final, I said, dude, you gonna crack a book or what? He goes, come on, dad, explain everything in class. I'm like, oh, you're in for a shock, little man. He got a 97. All right? But he makes noises. He's 10. He makes noises. Noises. I'm going up the stairs thinking there's a religious ceremony from another culture in the front room. I look, and it's him alone. Does he have a headset on? No. That would have explained something. There's no headset. He is the headset. All right? Well, I'm like, I don't care. He's brilliant. I'm going to ignore him. But my wife can't take it. She can't take it. We have letters after him. I teach at the University of Pittsburgh. And I'm the dummy in the family. My letters, ADHD. My wife's letters, OCD. I married a cellular biologist with a law degree. I wasn't thinking. <laughs> Everything's got to be right. The noises made her crazy. One day, she comes up to me. She says, you and me, when the kids go to bed, Breakfast nook. Got to talk about those noises. I'm like, he's 10. No, he's 10 and he's weird. <laughs> so I'm like, all right. She made a big mistake. I'll tell you what the mistake is so you women don't repeat it. She gave me about six hours to work out some things. 
kids are in bed by 10. I go out, I don't drink, but we have Baileys in the house. I poured one like this high, two ice cubes. I'm ready. I sit down and my wife does what your people do. She's going to try to get me to bring up the problem. So tomorrow she can say, your father talked to me about those noises. So she sits down, I sit down, she looks me right in the eye and she says, what do you think about the problem with clay? I had six hours to prepare. I looked her right in the eyes and I said, what do you mean? <laughs> you with me, right? This is, this is, I'm representing the brotherhood here, this is big. I said, what do you mean? She goes, she couldn't help herself. She goes, those noises, he emanate from his head. I'm like, emanate. <laughs> I said, honey, he's 10. She goes, he's weird. Sorry, right, brothers, you with me on this one. I need your reaction. If this is like way above what you expected me to say, please show me some love. I looked at woman, I had six hours to prepare. I look her in the eyes and I said, honey, I think he's just trying to find his voice. What could I have done with another two or three hours? That was as good as it was ever gonna get. I stunned her, right? We're talking about body language. Here's my wife's reaction. I said, what are you gonna do about that gadget? I said, honey, I think he's just trying to find his voice. She gives me one of these. And then she starts head nodding. That's what we're talking about, right? She starts head nodding and that's where I got sucked in. I said, so you agree? And she said, and I quote, no, body language man, I don't. <laughs> what am I gonna do? I went further in. I said, you're nodding your head. She said, are you serious? I'm giving you permission to continue. <laughs> Men and women communicate differently. Guys, one level, it's like, it's red. No, it's not red, it's maroon. It's this, it's that, it's fuchsia, it's something. We're just very simple beasts. Women are operating like tentacles. Nah, 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 at multiple levels of interpretation. It is so cool when you can step back. And I realize I've got some stereotyping in here and it's evil, but the bottom line is we're different. Have fun with it. Nonverbal communication or body language. It is 10 times more powerful than what you say in a first meeting. I thank you for your time. I certainly appreciate your attention. And I guarantee you'll all be assessing each other on the break. Have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been Education Elevated on the FLCMA Podcast Network. Download other episodes on a myriad of different topics for anyone in your club or organization, regardless of their job title or description. We'll see you next time.